Hello there. It is great to have you tuning in to episode 8 of our PolicyConnor.org podcast series. We will talk about a topic today that is as important as it is shocking. A scandal rocked the humanitarian sector in February 2018 when it became clear that employees of Oxfam, one of the largest humanitarian organizations in the world, had hired prostitutes during the 2012 mission in Haiti. It also became public knowledge that there had been a number of internal cases of sexual abuse that were in fact reported but had not been pursued further. We will talk about all of this with Serafina Dinkel, who wrote an article entitled Getting Your Own House in Order, highlighting some of these very serious issues. Welcome, Serafina. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. My name is Felix Hoffmann. I am moderating and producing this podcast for PolicyConnor.org, our website where we publish policy-oriented articles by young scholars and students. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider giving us a rating in iTunes and hit subscribe. This will help our project reach some new listeners. We are talking about sexual violence as a weapon of war or as a side effect of war and commit to providing countermeasures and training in conflict zones. And then it is humanitarian workers who get abused by other humanitarian workers. There's some sort of particularly sad irony to this. The Weinstein scandal and the Me Too movement, which swiped all industries really starting at the end of last year, um, has now reached the humanitarian sector um, quite late, if I may say so. Serafina is pursuing the joint master's degree between Sciences Po and the University of St. Gallen and so far has been specializing in international security. She's mainly interested in peace and security, human rights, international law, as well as in European affairs. She's also a member of the Policy Corner Team project at Sciences Po Paris. It is good to have you, Serafina. Thank you. So let's jump right in. Um, sexual harassment and abuse in the humanitarian sector. Could you explain to me why are we talking about this issue now? All right. First of all, let me explain how I personally got alerted to the topic. Last year, I was doing some research for a law class in a group um, on sexual violence and armed conflict. And one of the group members was very sensitive to the issue and had made personal experience of sexual harassment in the field. So she made sure to send an email alerting all of our peers that we were going to have this presentation, preempting somehow that people might have made similar experience. And I was sort of taken aback by this because we are talking about sexual violence as a weapon of war or as a side effect of war and commit to providing countermeasures and training in conflict zones. And then it is humanitarian workers who get abused by other humanitarian workers There's some sort of particularly sad irony to this. And second of all, the Weinstein scandal and the Me Too movement, which swiped all industries really starting at the end of last year, um, has now reached the humanitarian sector um, quite late, if I may say so. Yeah, absolutely. So do we have any idea of the scale of the problem? How, how widespread uh, is sexual abuse in, in humanitarian contexts? Well, we can't be that sure about the numbers because there aren't numbers about every humanitarian mission um, that is in place currently, obviously. But there are two surveys that we can draw back on. And one by the Humanitarian Women's Network showed that 80 
excuse me, 48% of workers had experienced sexual harassment on mission and 4% had suffered rape on mission. And the NGO report the abuse reported that 66% had suffered harassment. More than half of the perpetrators were colleagues and only a quarter were individuals from local communities. And we can assume that the the black numbers, so to speak, are higher than that because those surveys only represent a fraction of affected workers. Mm. So uh, before the scandal that you mentioned in your article and that I also mentioned uh, in the introduction involving Oxfam, what measures had been in place to actual, actually prevent uh, sexual exploitation and abuse? So there are several types of measures in place and their scope ranges between the different agencies. After there was a big UN peacekeeper abuse scandal, Uh, in the 2000s, Secretary General Kofi Annan issued a bulletin which set some, set some standards for prohibition, prevention, and repression. And many UN agencies and NGOs have adopted anti-harassment policies since then. Those policies include prohibitions, training requirements, and complaint procedures. Um, some NGOs have more elaborate procedures on how to follow up on harassment issues, And before the scandal, it was actually reported that Oxfam had one of the most comprehensive procedures in place. Hmm. So with, with everything that happened, it seems like these measures are insufficient, right? They, they do not work. What, what were the blind spots of, of these efforts and, and why did they not work as, as they were supposed to? Well, first of all, we need to note that not all NGOs have codes of conduct and not all codes of conduct um, are very specific about harassment issues. Um, in the report, the abuse study, it was found that only 30% of the 92 most important charities had counter sexual harassment policies. And secondly, measures are often inefficient or they're mistrusted as victims fear career damage, superiors who handle complaints are regarded as hostile, or complaints are minimized, as is often the problem within other companies as well. And finally, um, investigations are often not really pursued. Even if they're launched, they often lack consequences. Um, so this is also essentially a human resources issue, um, which is also something that we saw in the Oxfam scandals, that complaints were made, but they weren't really followed up, nor by the NGO, nor by local authorities because the issues weren't reported. Um, you just uh, mentioned the, the NGO report, the abuse, which um, produced these, these really um, important numbers that you just cited. And this NGO was founded by Megan Nobert in 2015, who is herself a former aid worker that uh, suffered sexual abuse. Her NGO had to cease operations in 2017 due to a lack of funding. Do you think there is a lack of attention to the issue. Is there enough commitment to tackle it and to really change something about this? I think that's a very important question to raise. Let me just first say a few words about Megan Norbert because her work is quite remarkable. Um, she's a lawyer specialized in international criminal law and human rights, and she went public in 2015 with the story of how she was drugged and raped by a fellow aid worker in South Sudan. And she was first published in The Guardian, I believe, and this was after followed with a series of revelations made by The Guardian in a column called Secret Aid Worker. 
And she founded this NGO, um, which published guidelines, which published, published some stories. And it was declared in 2017 that it had to cease operation because there are so many other pressing humanitarian issues around the world that this sort of internal problem couldn't receive enough attention from donors. Um, hopefully there's some movement for change now. We can really see that reporting on these issues has, ri has risen immensely throughout the past two months since the scandal broke loose. And even big agencies like the UK Department for International Development have now brought increased attention to the issue. Um, the Department for International Development is carrying out investigations of all the UK charities that it funds. And it has even started internal investigations. So there is some hope that we are building a culture of transparency and that there is hopefully some movement. So so let's just hope they can uh, sort of keep it on the agenda because there have been cases um, or scandals before. For example, um, in 2016, a United Nations employee named uh, Anders Kompass, he's from Sweden, he blew the whistle on child sex abuse in the Central African Republic by, by French peacekeepers. And uh, he since resigned, actually, from the United Nations, basically in frustration over their handling of the case. In 2016, he told the IRA news agency the complete impunity for those who have been found to have, in various degrees, abused their authority, together with the unwillingness of the hierarchy to express any regrets for the way they acted towards me, sadly confirms that lack of accountability is entrenched in the United Nations. So it's the United Nations, it's Oxfam. Is there a common theme, something that could explain why this problem is so prevalent? I believe there's definitely a common theme. Um, we just need to dis distinguish here that uh, peacekeepers aren't actually subject to UN scrutiny because they're sent by their member states. So it's of the member state's responsibility to prevent them from committing abuse. But it is also the responsibility of the UN, obviously, to make sure member states train them and make sure that such abuse is not committed. Um, I suppose the general issues is that weaker groups are often exploited when another group is in power. And this is the same situation with a humanitarian worker um, abusing a beneficiary because they get the chance to, as well as a you know, humanitarian worker potentially abusing another humanitarian workers. Um, so the common issue is that well, UN agencies and NGOs themselves project values. So it is harder to report on issues because there might be some reputational concerns. Um, and additionally, in the field, it is much more, much more difficult to protect from harassment and abuse because the situation is so exceptional and in security assessment the issue of gender-based violence sexual violence sexual abuse is often less emphasized because there are more immediate security concerns but it's not only an issue in the field um, the Oxfam scandal for example has revealed some issues in um, headquarters of UK charities and um, Oxfam charity shops and so on so uh, it's really the same problem as other industries are facing. Interesting. So 
Um, I think, like just looking at, at these two cases at the United Nations and at Oxfam, it seems like a like a really threatening scandal is necessary and is needed to force these actors to really, as you as you called it, get their own house in order. Why do you think is preventing sexual exploitation and abuse such a low priority for for many of these organizations? Hmm. Well, as I just said. Those organizations don't have an easy task and they are trying to promote positive change in very pressing security and humanitarian situations around the world. Um, so for them, human resources issues are probably not the highest priority. Um, the problem is essentially that there is not enough exchange between the agencies and that um, complaints might be made but then there's an easy transfer between agencies. Um, and as I mentioned before, reputation might be an issue as well. Um, Secretary General Antonio Guterres has chosen to address the issue, for example, in an internal letter to UN employees and has chosen not to publicly speak about the issue. And in my mind, this really reflects the problem here um, that Charities are afraid to get under public scrutiny uh, for actions that contradict, contradict their value principles. Mm. Interesting. Um, you just raised uh, the the point of reputation, and I'd like to talk about this a little more. When it's when it comes to the decision to pursue or or not to pursue cases of of sexual abuse, what role do you think does reputation play? Well, for the individual. I think um, that people who work in the humanitarian sector identify a lot with their employer. So it becomes harder to raise complaints or issues about the employer because in attacking them, they somehow attack their own legitimacy and they're not trying to prevent their employer from acting. And for the organization, um, well, it obviously plays a big role and Oxfam had, in the last year, uh, tried to promote this whole getting your host, own house in order approach, even before the scandal broke loose. And even in 2017, they let go a lot of workers because they were upping their compliance policy. And while they were doing that, they got a lot of negative response in the media. Um, there was a reported scandal, public criticism, but what they had did was merely to strengthen their compliance policy. And this is an issue um, because, as I mentioned before, those those humanitarian um, institutions, they face a lot more criticism for those issues because of the funding they get from the public um, and also, well, the, the values they're trying to project. So I think reputation is a, is a big issue and I think it's very difficult um, for companies to up their compliance um, while preserving their image, which, which is so important for them. So considering everything that, that we have talked about, what do you think can humanitarian organizations do to effectively combat and especially to, to prevent sexual exploitation and abuse in humanitarian contexts? Well, as a first step, and this sounds really obvious, but we've seen that not all of the organizations have conduct codes in place and not all agencies adopt 
or integrate sexual harassment issues into their environment awareness trainings. So this is a point that can easily be addressed by adopting a sexual harassment policy, by adopting codes of conduct, by making sure that sexual violence risks are emphasized in trainings for all stuff and that such trainings are refreshed from time to time. And secondly, a very important point is cross-agency cooperation and common vetting procedures to make sure that individuals against whom complaints have already been raised, that those individuals can't very easily just move from one job in the humanitarian sector to another. And apparently this happens quite a lot. So the UK Development Secretary, in her plan to combat this issue, has proposed a sort of global humanitarian worker register, which would actually improve interagency exchange of information about these individuals. And I think that this collaborative aspect is one of the most important ones. Mm, so awareness plus organizational cooperation. Let's uh, hope this can uh, do the trick. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining me via Skype, Serafina. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode of our policyconda.org podcast series. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes and tell as many of your friends as you possibly can. My guest today was Serafina Dinkel. Thank you again so much for joining me. It was great. Thank you very much for having me. Please feel free to check out our website, policycorner.org, where you can find Serafina's article and many more, and do not hesitate to get in touch if you want to join our team. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Felix Hoffmann, and that's it for today. More exciting stuff to come, so as always, be back next month for our policycorner.org podcast series. Goodbye.